welcome to Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. It is my pleasure to welcome Reed Jolly again up front here. If you don't know him, and maybe if you're new or watching online for the first time, he's a retired pastor, but he is not retired. He's blessing us and many of the churches with his gifts. Would you please welcome Reed Jolly as he comes to preach? Thanks, man. If you don't know him, you don't want to know him. That's what he should have said. But uh, great to be here. I know you've been struggling with insomnia because you're wondering what happened to Hezekiah. We're going to find out. Oh, you don't get the joke. In August, we, 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 we looked at Hezekiah for a couple of weeks, and now we're back. And uh, we're going we're gonna to wrap it up. Hezekiah was the 13th king of Judah, the little tiny southern kingdom of Israel. His nemesis was the bad guy named Sennacherib. Sennacherib was the king of the Assyrians, and he came down and pretty much ravaged all of Judah except for Jerusalem. And we started out looking in the early August, we, talk, we looked at the faith of Hezekiah. He trusted in Yahweh alone. And then week two, we looked at the prayer of Hezekiah. If you remember, uh, Jerusalem was surrounded and it just looked really bleak. And high, uh, uh, Sennacherib writes Hezekiah a letter and he takes the letter in and opens it up in the temple and just says, Lord, would you look at this? And God did a miracle. He, he did an absolute miracle. All of the Assyrian army wakes up dead. That's actually what the Hebrew text says. Uh, in the morning, behold, they were all corpses. And uh, that, that was God's provision for, for the people of uh, Judah and Israel. Okay, <clears throat> today we're going to come to Isaiah 38. I hope you have a Bible with you. Find Isaiah. It's after the Psalms, and you've got Proverbs and all that stuff. And then uh, Isaiah is the first big prophet. If you get to Jeremiah, just turn left and go back to Isaiah, okay? We're going to read uh, at least part of our passage, and then we're going to come back to, uh, come back to it in a minute. But uh, l- let me read the first five verses of Isaiah 38. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die. You shall not recover. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, Please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. Go say to Hezekiah, thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. Wow. Two observations that are fairly straightforward. The prophecy from Isaiah for God to Hezekiah is decisive. Wouldn't you agree? <laughs> you are going to die. You shall not live. It, it, it's decisive. There, there's no mincing of words. Uh, my dad died at 92 one year ago, Friday. And he died of lung cancer, he was never a smoker, but he got a tumor in his lung. And uh, a few months earlier, he went to the doctor and he saw the x-ray and the tumor was about that size. It was big. And the doctor said, you have stage four lung cancer. 
And my dad had a good sense of humor, and he said, oh, how many stages are there? <laughs> if you don't know, there's only four. <laughs> so then my dad asked the doctor, he said, how long do you think I have? And the doctor said, oh, probably two years. And my dad said, he just laughed. My dad laughed. He said, because he knew he didn't have two years. He had five months, I think. The doctor couldn't say what was obvious. Isaiah says for the Lord, what is obvious, you're going to die. Now, the second observation is that Hezekiah faces death, and we're going to see this. He faces death like a real person. He, he, he doesn't face death like a superhero or a despondent atheist. No, he's, he has a faithful sorrow. Now, one of life's unmentionables in our time and place is death. We have a hard time saying the word. Here, here's a little test for you. Most of us in the next few weeks, between now and the first of the year, we're going to be invited to a party where we don't know everyone. And you're going to meet someone that you don't know. Try this. See, see how it goes. Go up and say, hello, my name is so-and-so. And then the normal question we ask in our culture is, well, what do you do? You know, what keeps you busy? That, that's a nice way to get to know someone. Try skipping that question and saying, hey, when do you plan to die? You won't be invited back next year to the party. You know, we live in a time and a culture where we find it terribly easy to deny the reality of death. This is especially true in California. I don't know if you know that. I married a gal who lived in Rochester, New York. I'm still married to her. She's the love of my life. But I went out to Rochester, New York, and I saw all these churches with graveyards out there. And she was getting irritated with me because I wanted to take pictures of all the graves. Because being a Californian, I'd never really seen many graves. In California, we hide our graveyards. We'd, I've, I've done a lot of funerals in my life. Only two or three, has there been a body in the room? Do you know what the word funeral, where it comes from? It comes from a Latin word, funi, which means corpse. And historically, in, at Christian funerals, the body has always been in the room. But, but we don't even call them funerals. What do we call them? Yeah, celebration of life. We have a hard time saying death. I'll I, I just give you a difference in, in the age that we live in. If we went back to the early 1700s, Cotton Mather was a pastor in Boston. He died 1729. Give you a little date. There will be no test after the sermon. But, but he was a pastor, pretty well known. He had three wives in his life, not because he got divorced, but his first wife died, his second wife died, and he married a third time. I would think if the first two died, you would say, I'm staying away from that guy. But, uh, but death in that time was very, very common at an earlier age. And he and his three wives had 15 children. Now watch this. Only two of them outlived their father. Death was just a part of life. Jonathan Edwards, who was about 30 years younger than Cotton Mather, Jonathan Edwards was a pastor in Northampton, Massachusetts, and he was there for 23 years, and he and his wife had 11 children, 10 daughters and one son. The 10 daughters were all six feet tall, so it was said that Jonathan Edwards had 60 feet of daughters and one son. I don't know how tall he was. But Edwards and his wife, Esther, or, uh, Sarah, they, as if we care, but Jonathan and his wife were the only, the church of 600 people, they were the only couple in the church that had all of their children live. 
And there was a little gossip about that. It didn't seem to be too fair. My point is that that's not the world that you and I live in. I was a pastor of one church for 39 years. We had several children that were born, stillborn, but we never lost a child after it was born. In 39 years, you can see the vast difference. But with that, we've become very uncomfortable with death. With the advent of modern medicine, with antibiotics and vaccinations and wondrous surgical abilities, we tend to think that we will live forever. I have a friend who has a cookbook. It's called The How Not to Die Cookbook, which I think the title oversells the book a little bit. Richard John Newhouse put it like this. He said, death can be warded off by exercise, by healthy habits, by medical advances, but what cannot be halted can be delayed. What cannot forever be delayed can be denied, but all our progress and all our protest notwithstanding, the mortality rate holds steady, 100%. We will die. Previous generations expected death. We deny death. Well, King Hezekiah is one of those rare individuals that looks at the prospect of his imminent death and he lives to talk about it. Not too many of us get that. Look again at verse one, the second half. God does not use a euphemism to talk with Hezekiah. A euphemism is a polite way of saying that. He didn't, God doesn't say, you're going to pass. He doesn't say, Hezekiah, your days are numbered. Your time is short. Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, finish your family trust, for you shall die. Now, Hezekiah's response is not sentimental. He doesn't say, oh, I'm going to go to a better place. Not terribly religious. He doesn't sing, in Christ alone my hope is found. No, he doesn't. The song hadn't even been written yet. No fatalistic resignation. He even bargains with God. Did you notice that in verse 3? Lord, please remember how I've walked before you in faithfulness with a whole heart and I've done what is good and right in your sight. You owe me, God. My dad, Ahaz, yeah, he deserved to die, but but I'm I'm the good king. Do you remember? I don't deserve this. Hezekiah was as we are. We think somehow that by being good and doing the religious thing that somehow... Well, we'll put God in our debt. Hezekiah, the the heart of his response is tears. He weeps, verse 2. He blubbers. He cries. He doesn't want to die. At the heart of his response are his tears. Now, that is quite jarring for for an Old Testament superhero. This is the one who is like David. This is the one about whom it said the Lord was with him. And that's only said of two kings, David and Hezekiah. This is the one who the text says in 2 Kings chapter 18, he held fast to the Lord, and now he's going to die at age 39. Verse 3, he turns his face to the wall and he weeps bitterly in the English Standard Version. The Hebrew word there means continuously or copiously or profusely. Church, aren't we glad that this is in the Bible? I am, it gives us permission, and some of us need it, to mourn the bitter reality of death, no holds barred, to be angry at death's absolute power. I I read a biography years ago of of an art historian named Hans Ruckmacher. Anybody hear of that name? Uh, Ruckmacher 
was an art historian, very involved with Francis Schaeffer, and, and I was intrigued with one of his books, so I read the biography. It was a short biography. And when Rookmucker was young, he was engaged to a woman named Ricky. And while they were engaged, before they married, Ricky died. And Hans went on with his life and found another wife and got married and was happily married and had children and so on. But this biographer interviewed the wife about his life, and she said, you know, I think he missed Ricky his whole life. That's the power of death. We never forget it. When someone that we love dies, we never get over it. We never forget it. It's there. Well, Hezekiah has a, an extreme case of FOMO. He doesn't want to miss it. We don't want to die because we don't want to miss it. Verse 4, just so we know the end of the story, the Lord came to Isaiah, go and say to Hezekiah, thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, has heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. So in one sense, that's the end of the story. In 2 Chronicles, which has three chapters on Hezekiah, and in 2 Kings, which has three chapters in Isaiah, uh, Hezekiah, the story just moves right along. But as Isaiah tells the story, we get a pause. And Isaiah shows us something that we don't see anywhere else. Isaiah has access, look at verse 9, he has access to the journals of the king. A writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, after he had been sick and recovered from his sickness. So, so here's a psalm that King Hezekiah wrote. And I'm going to read it to you, and then we're going to talk about it real briefly. Here's what Hezekiah wrote as he is sick and as he comes out of it. I said in the middle of my days, verse 10, I must depart. I am consigned to the gates of Sheol. For the rest of my years, I said, I shall not see the Lord, the Lord in the land of the living. I shall look on man no more among the inhabitants of the world. My dwelling is plucked up and removed from me like a shepherd's tent. Like a weaver, I have rolled up my life. He cuts me off from the loom, the loom. From day to night, you bring me to an end. I calmed myself until morning. Like a lion, he breaks all my bones. From day to night, you bring me to an end. Like a swallow or a crane, I chirp. I mourn like a dove. My eyes are weary from looking upward. Oh, Lord, I am oppressed. Be my pledge of safety. What shall I say? For he has spoken to me, and he himself has done it. I walk slowly all my years because of the bitterness of my soul. Oh, Lord, by these things men live, and in all these things is the life of my spirit. Oh, restore me to health and make me live. Behold, verse 17. It was for my welfare that I had great bitterness, but in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction. For you have cast all my sins behind your back. For Sheol does not thank you, death does not praise you. Those who go down to the pit do not hope for your faithfulness. The living, the living, he thanks you as I do this day. The Father makes known to the children your faithfulness. The Lord will save me and we will play music on the stringed instruments all the days of our life at the house of the Lord. Wow, 
Isaiah is like a hiker in the Grand Canyon. Been to the Grand Canyon? One rim of the canyon is here, and you hike 5,000 feet down to the Colorado River, and if you're crazy, you go up the other side another 6,000 feet to the North Rim. That's the way Hezekiah's psalm reads. He, he takes us first down the trail of despair in verses 10 to 14. Look at verse 10. He, he says, consigned to the gates of Sheol. Sheol in the Old Testament is the place of the dead. It's a nebulous place. It, it's not hell and it's not heaven. And you don't want to go there because you don't really know what goes on there. But it's a place to be abandoned by God. And... Hezekiah doesn't want to go there. The Old Testament writers didn't have the clarity that we have in our new covenant about where we go when we die. And Hezekiah is distressed. FOMO again, verse 11, I shall not see the Lord in the land of the living. My life of worship, adoration, song, celebration. I'm going to miss the concert on Thursday night. It's over. He also cuts me off from humankind, more FOMO. Look at that. He says, I shall look on man no more among the inhabitants of the world. I'm going to miss it, and I don't want to miss it. Isaiah Berlin, the British philosopher, put it like this. He said, isn't death a nuisance? I'm terribly curious. I would like to live forever. Now, my mother-in-law was a wonderful woman, and she died about 14 years ago, ironically enough, of lung cancer. And uh, I was talking to her one morning before she died, and, and she said, I just would like to see my grandchildren grow up. And I said, that's good, Barbara. Of course you would. And I said, but let's think about it. If you saw your grandchildren grow up, do you know what you would want? You would want to see your great-grandchildren grow up. And if you saw your great-grandchildren grow up, you'd want to see your great-great-grandchildren grow up. We don't want to miss out. So the despair of Hezekiah, as he takes us down this trail, it's described in four similes. You can get this on your GRE test. A simile is when you say something is like something else. Okay? Now you got one right on your GRE test. You can go to Stanford. <laughs> I got one right on my test. Oh, I guess the SAT test. GRE is for the next school after that, but SAT. Do they still have SAT tests? Optional. Oh, I, I was born in the wrong period of time. I would have done, I would have done really well on the optional test. <laughs> but Hezekiah, look at what he says. These are similes. There's your vocabulary word for the day. Like a shepherd's tent, verse 12. What happens to a shepherd's tent? It gets taken down. That's the way my life is. It's coming down. Verse 12 again, like a weaver, I have rolled up my life. The picture here is of a tapestry that describes his whole life, and he says, I've got to roll it up now. I'm going to die. Worse, he says, God's the one who's going to cut the final thread, verse 12. He cuts me off from the loom. God has done this. My life is snipped off like a thread, and God has done the snipping. Verse 13, like a lion. Now God is becoming not Hezekiah's friend, but his enemy, because God is the one who's decreed that he's going to die. Like a lion, he breaks all my bones from day to night. You bring me to an end. Now Hezekiah sees God as a hostile lion, a threat. A church, this is rugged honesty 
in the face of death. Lastly, verse 14, like a swallow or like a crane, I chirp. Chirp? I moan like a dove. My eyes are weary with looking upward. It's a picture of Hezekiah saying, I'm sick of praying. Jews looked upward when they prayed. They didn't close their eyes and look down. They looked upward. And I'm just a bird chirping. No one is hearing my prayer. The king now is at the bottom of the canyon. His resources are spent. He is despondent. I hope I don't offend anyone with this, but, but the Christian life, the Old Testament, is not like a Thomas Kincaid painting where everything is harmonious and all the English cottages are perfect and there's a big fire blazing with a dog sleeping by it. No, no, no. In the Bible, we find real characters who face real trials, who experience the full range of emotions. And here is Hezekiah in the depths of the canyon. And God says, I've heard your prayer. And the remainder of Hezekiah's psalm is going up the trail of deliverance. He's come down the trail of despair, now the trail of hope. I walked in bitterness of soul, verse 15. In love, verse 17, you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction. God gives him 15 more years, and you've delivered me. Literally, the Hebrew says, you loved my soul from the pit. I love it. You loved my guts from the pit. The psalm begins with a reference to the gates of Sheol, and it ends with a reference to the house of the Lord, where there's a lot of singing and dancing and mirth and play. The Lord will save me, and we will play music on stringed instruments. Well, there it is. 39 years old, he has a close encounter with death. What, what do we think is the message of this section of Scripture for us, for the original readers? I, I want us to, to note and, and learn kind of two polarized lessons. They're really different from one another. The first, I needed to get a PhD to learn this, but the, the text is telling us that we are going to die. As much as we want to deny it, we are going to die. Hezekiah has the rare privilege of having his days numbered by God. He says 15 more years. Psalm 90 verse 12 tells you and tells me that we ought to number our days so that we get a heart of wisdom. The passage reminds us of our imminent death and asks us what we will do with the years or the months or the weeks or the days between now and then. So we just had an anniversary last night, or last month, a dreadful one, the anniversary of 9-11. And those of us who remember it, we couldn't help but think, well, what, what was I like when that happened 20 years earlier? I, I was 48. And when I was 48, I believed I was going to be the first homo sapien to never wear out. I mean, everything felt good. The knees, the ankles, the shoulders, the arms. Everything felt good. 20 years later, I'm starting to pay attention to those hearing aid ads on TV. Things are starting to wear out. Doggone it, I thought I was going to be the only one. 
Elton Trueblood puts it like this, man may learn in his ingenuity to postpone death. We've done that, folks. He may learn to ease his pains, but he cannot overcome death. Death is the great Democrat, small d, who in the end levels all of our pretensions. So if death levels my pretensions, what am I going to do in the meantime? What are you going to do in the meantime? Isaiah 38, rightly understood, compels us to understand every day that we have as a gift from God. Hezekiah's calling was to be the king of Judah. We have different callings, but we are called. And I, I love the, the purpose statement of this church. We glorify God. And make disciples finish it for me, Tim. I tried to do that at the 9.30 service, and it just didn't work. So I don't have, I don't have the raw intelligence that you do. I don't, I'm only a master, not a doctor. Darn it. <laughs> it's, a good, it's a good little purpose statement to kind of roll in your brain, that we glorify God. We make disciples by practicing love, acts of love every day. What are we going to do with the life that God gives us? That's lesson number one. At the other pole is right over here. It's not just that we're going to die, but that God is the one who wipes away our tears. God is the one who wipes away our tears. Hezekiah weeps, God wipes. Hezekiah prays, God hears. Hezekiah sings, the Lord listens. But watch this. If we miss this, I think we're going to miss something terribly important. Hezekiah only gets a puny 15 years. 39 plus 15, what's, what's that add up to? 54? Am I right? Get nervous whenever I do math. Hezekiah had to die again. Did he face the wall again? Did he, did he weep bitterly again? We, we're not told. But he's raised in a way, and he still has to die. In the same area, Elijah had raised a widow's son years earlier. And that little son grew up and cared for his mom, but, but that son had to die a second time. Jesus did the same miracle in the same area. And that little boy was raised from the dead, but he had to go and do it all again. The scriptures talk about a time when God will wipe away our tears, not for 15 years, but forever. I just read Revelation in my devotions a couple weeks ago, and, and several times in the book, there's, there's this, a scene where, well, Revelation 7, everybody's there. The angels are there, the elders are there, the four living creatures are there, and they're all worshiping the lamb who's at the center. And we read in that passage that, that because of this, all the, the, a vast multitude shows up in white robes that have been washed in the blood of the lamb. They're purified by Christ. And as they worship, the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water. And God, get this, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Not for 15 years, but forever. 
Teresa of Avila said, from the perspective of eternity, the worst life on earth will seem like one bad night in a hotel. Or Tolkien said, you know, when, when Christ comes again, everything sad be, it will become untrue. Now, how does God do this? How can God wipe away our tears forever? You might think, well, that's easy. He just wipes away our tears. No, it's actually quite a problem for God. Hezekiah is sick and God can say, poof, 15 more years. But there's a deeper problem behind the curtain, a deeper death than the one that Hezekiah is going to die. It's the death that covers all creation. In the day that you eat of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, you will surely die. The wages of sin is death. Hebrews 9, it's appointed unto man to die once and then face the judgment. Get this. If God is just, he could not simply wipe away our tears permanently because sin demands that the penalty be paid. How does God get us out of this? How can the loving character of God triumph over the judgment of God? There's only one way. God himself sheds our tears. The penalty has to pay, be paid, and he pays it himself. I know some of you think, I could never memorize the Bible. Let me ask you, what's the shortest verse in the Bible? I knew you could memorize the Bible. Jesus wept. What, what is the context there? Lazarus has gone to, uh, Jesus has gone to Bethany. Lazarus did too. Lazarus has died in Bethany. And Jesus shows up and he stands outside the tomb of Lazarus. And that's when we read, Jesus wept. Twice in the passage, we learn that Jesus was deeply moved. And that's a really interesting word. It, it's a word used of a war horse going into battle, snorting. And as you study the passage, you realize Jesus stands out in front of the tomb of Lazarus. He knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He weeps over the reality and the brutal fact of death. And the backdrop of the whole story is that he knows he's going to die within about a week. Jesus weeps so that he can wipe our tears. He goes to the cross so that we don't have to. God says to Hezekiah, I have seen your tears. God says to us, I will wipe away your tears. And Jesus, right in that context of standing outside the tomb of Lazarus, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet will he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. What's the key word in that passage? Belief. When we put our faith in Christ personally and finally, trustingly, well, then he will wipe away our tears, not for 15 years, but forever. So I'm just about done, but the main point of everything that I've tried to say is this. Hezekiah had his tears wiped away for 15 years, but the same one that wiped away his tears for 15 years will wipe away our tears fully and finally forever. Amen? We're going to give Jonathan Edwards the last word. 
I don't know if you've heard, we have a vaccine in our country right now and it's controversial maybe. Jonathan Edwards lived at the time of another vaccine for smallpox. It was brand new. In fact, the guy that invented the smallpox vaccine originally, they put him in prison because he was trying to put smallpox back into people and that was thought to be crazy. But they didn't really know what they were doing too much and Jonathan Edwards was very into getting the vaccine. He was, had just become president of the College of New Jersey, which became Princeton University. And he took the smallpox vaccine and it took his life. He died. His throat closed up. He died a very gruesome death. But he sent word to his family. These are the last words of Jonathan Edwards, who literally wrote thousands of pages. These are his last words. Trust in God and you need not fear. So Lord, may we be found among those who trust in you and in you alone. God, we want to be found among the company of those who have their tears wiped away fully and finally. I want to pray for any in this room who have yet to submit to you as Lord and Savior. I want to pray that you would open their eyes and open their hearts and that they would see you and become a part of that company of believers. For the rest of us, Lord, may our faith hold fast in you. May we, may we number our days and use those days for your kingdom and for your glory. Uh, we pray these things in the name of our great Savior who died in our place, Jesus Christ. We say together, thank you, praise you, and amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website at www.carmelpres.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.